Welcome to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of Flash of Steel. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow. With me tonight on the regular panel with Tom Chick. Hello. Hi. Uh, I, I have a coffee here. If I can get anyone a coffee, let me know. I'll, I'm on that. His partner in writing, Bruce Garrick. What are you guys going to do now that the comedian's dead? Spoiler. Spoiler. I'm talking about Milton Berle. <laughs> and back with us this week is Julian Murdoch. Welcome back. Hello. Julian. Did you all miss me terribly? I know. I oh, did. you weren't here last week. That's what oh, was missing. very funny. Very oh, funny. <laughs> Our special guest today is John Hawkins of KE Studios. Hi, Welcome everybody. Back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. He is the designer of one of last year's best war games, War Plan Pacific. So I thought and only war games. <laughs> you, you've damned him with faint praise. <laughs> there were quite a few bad war games last year, uh, and very few good ones. Uh, this one and Grigsby's uh, War Between the States are the only two I thought worthy of mention in my year-end wrap-up. It's a very bleak year. Uh, so welcome to what Soren Johnson has called in his blog the Perfect Strategy Podcast, which I think is probably the only strategy podcast, but... Uh, that's like calling John's game the perfect war game. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't, there, wasn't there a war game in the 80s called the perfect war game? Or the perfect general, that's what it was called. The perfect general, which I always thought was too much pressure. Wow, QQP. An old QQP reference. I'm, right. I'm elated and, and, to and, hear and that. Then, and then they had a, a lost admiral one also, right? Yes. Right, the, the, the general yeah. is perfect, and the poor admiral is lost. I mean, what, right, what right. kind of ground-based warfare bias is that? <laughs> naval, naval warfare is harder to do. As John will probably As, be able to tell us about. So, John, uh, yeah. glad you could join us. Let's begin with you. Um, I'm going to ask you the first obvious question. Why bother making a war game uh, in this day and age? Especially one where there's... Uh, I mean, it's got a really nice packaging, it's got a great manual, clearly a lot of effort went into making it. It uh, could not have been an easy task, even if you are adapting it. So what's the inspiration, and uh, why bother? Well, uh, really the inspiration is I, I wanted to play a game like that, and there, there wasn't one out there. Um, I, I you know, grew up playing a lot of games, both board games and, and computer games, and I just I got to a point in my life where I couldn't, find anything on the market that engaged me in something I liked, uh, but was playable in a uh, amount of time I could spare. So I thought, well, I can't be the only person like that. I'll see if I can make a game. So why the Pacific Theater? I mean, there's well, this... that's, all, that's always kind of been my, you know, one of my favorite um, theaters to, to game, um, to read about, to, to be interested in. And, um, Victory in the Pacific, the old Avalon Hill war game, was was my first war game I ever owned, so I thought, wow, it would be a natural start for me. We're going to talk a lot about that, by the way. We are? Yes. Okay. I, Being someone, I don't... John, can you tell us a little bit about the similarities between Victory in the Pacific? Yeah, can and you expand on those for our audience? Um, well, I'll, uh, yeah, so like the... I guess the first real similarity is they're both games that play faster than most of the other games in the genre. Um, you know, I, I, Victory in the Pacific, the, the biggest inspiration it had for me was it convinced me that you could actually make a, a playable um, Pacific theater game that could be fun and still have some historical flavor to it. So 
really the similarities you're dealing with uh, only with the larger ships, um, a whole host of destroyers and submarines and PT boats are, are just not in either game. Um, there's a lot of abstraction in terms of where you're going, you know, what the map looks like. Um, the There's a lot of differences, too, in that I didn't, you know, I wasn't just trying to, to port a board game. I was trying to look at what the board game did and and understand some of the abstractions that the designers for that game made and why they might have made them. Um, and there were cases where I actually came to the to the, sort of the same uh, design ideas that they had, but I, but independently, I was actually trying to avoid you know being too close to the game. But sometimes the the needs of making it you know playable and 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 fast paced kind of brought me down the same paths they did. What were these specific design challenges that you think the Avalon Hill people faced that uh, you encountered as well? And how do your solutions are they how are they similar and different? Well, I think. So one of the uh, obvious ones is the the units. How many units are in the game? And I had originally wanted to have destroyers um, in, and when I got down to to figuring out how many units there were and and looking at what the turn length was going to be and what it needed to be, I wanted a, a three hour game. And when I looked at that, that meant maybe four four minutes a turn. Um, and with the destroyers, they even if I grouped them into squadrons, it was going to double the number of turns or double the number of units in the game, and and then I'd probably have to add maybe twice the number of bases, uh, so they'd have some place to go and not just be overshadowed by the bigger ships. So I was really looking at kind of a fourfold increase in complexity of the game, and and it just was never going to fit in the time period. So I thought, well, I'll, you know, reluctantly I cut destroyers, um, which also led to cutting some of the complexity out of the um, the surface battle game. And and that was something that now I was looking back at Victory in the Pacific and like, okay, well, we're back down to the same same ships. So why don't I just take their order of battle? <laughs> <laughs> Bruce, why don't you pitch in here? Well, I mean, I think that's... Uh, I don't really have much to pitch in. I mean, John's a designer and... Um, well, yeah, well, ask a question. Rick, a comment. No, I, I point out, by the way, that Bruce has, uh, <laughs> Bruce has some unique insight into the game because he... He was fiddling with it when it was in beta, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, that's curses. Yeah, he caught me on that. Uh, Plus, um, I did. I yeah, I did. Um, I did do some beta testing on the game, although um, I had to, due to work constraints, I had to um, drop out of the beta um, after only I think about a month or so of involvement. But it was uh, obviously something that I really was very interested in. Um, I can talk about Victory in the Pacific basically all this entire podcast, and also the, you know the next three podcasts. Uh, <laughs> So I don't I don't know I mean I, Victory of the Pacific is one of the I think one of the best games ever made. The only thing that they got wrong is that the Japanese have an advantage. Um, so, but the, which is balanced by the fact that uh, you generally bid uh, points to get, you give away um, victory points to to pl- be able to play the Japanese. But um, I mean it, it really is the perfect game and um, it does so many things as a board game right. Um, it, it's it actually takes longer. Probably, I think face to face, it's probably I don't know. It's probably about a six hour game. Um, so it's I think it's probably about twice as long as uh, as Warplan Pacific. But the, I mean, the games have the games have so many things in common. And I've got to say, I I think that the one of the design choice that uh, John made wasn't really a choice. I think it's the obvious. I, I don't think you really can really portray destroyers at this level. 
Um, so a lot of that stuff, I think, is <clears throat> sort of... Uh, it, yeah, I, it's I, kind I, of trying to swim against the tri- t- tide and then realizing, no, I, I, it's not going to work. And yeah, going I think back, that, let's, yeah. Yeah, a lot of that stuff sort of dictated to you. I don't think that um, I don't think you could really make uh, a Pacific Theater game of this complexity and, and, and really do anything other than do cruisers and hire. Um, I mean, I have a lot of comments about the way that the game works, and actually a lot of comments about the presentation that um, that uh, I'm actually really really curious about why these choices were made. So I'm just going to jump right into it, um, John. Pretty much everything I have to say about the game is really superficial and dumb, um, because I'm one of the, the the only thing that really kind of bothers me about the game. I love the game. I uh, I played it forever and ever uh, um, when I was beta testing it. I played it over and over. Um, why did you choose to? Um, and this is might be even obvious because since you're a one man um, one man shop, um, I think the art was probably quite a bit of an investment for you. I'm curious as to why um, you don't, the the strategic layer, the, the, the map you have, the, the, the main map seems kind of static and you don't get a lot of stuff represented on the map itself. You sort of have to drill down into the game to see what's going on. Uh, it's one of my biggest problems with the game um, as, a, as, a, as a sort of board, board game-ish like war game. Could you give an example of, of something? Well, for about? example, so so one of the things about about Victory in the Pacific as a game is that it's the the presentation is sort of everything as a as a board game. Um, there's an, a tremendous impact to the way the board looks. Um, there's a tremendous impact to you know somebody taking their uh, stack of you know U.S. carriers and plopping them down in one you know area. Um, it's it's really I remember this one time when I was playing uh, against some guy and I don't know what it was I went to get a coffee or something while he was uh, making his first move and I came back and just the look of the board was like oh my god you did what I mean it just it was so arresting to see how the board looked after that first move and um, and each move thereafter. Um, and on the Warplan Pacific map, you don't really get that sense. I mean, one uh, sort of ship icon in uh, in Hawaii could be, you know, could be one ship or could be fifty ships. Well, actually, and that's one of the that's one of the few things about the sort of the front end of it that I actually thought was fine. I thought understanding where my ship strength was was easy because you can see the size of the little ship. I mean, that that was one of the few things I felt like I could get right away. My my biggest beef, if we're going for beefs, was getting the actual tactical information out of the map, like, uh, wait a minute, which one of these places has an oil field? Which one of these places is contested? Which one of these places is uh, considered a sea lane? I mean, all that stuff should be obvious if you played the game a few times, but I found myself constantly having to reopen territories just to see what the heck they were and whether they were important. You know, which ones did I have to hold to get B-52, I mean, to get bombers? Um, those things, I, I found myself constantly digging back in and back in, and, and I, I really missed having a co- more complex board for those reasons more than anything else. Interesting. So, Go ahead, so John, I, answer so I think, uh, uh, Yeah, so I think Ju- uh, Julian's uh, beef is probably the easiest one for me to articulate the answer to, and, and it really came down to... Um, trying to avoid clutter on the map. Um, 
I, I thought sure. about having there, there, there are little icons on the, the base screens when you open them up that tell you if it's a oil. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Base, right. Right. And I was thinking about you know can I can I put those around the bases, um, and for some of them, for ones like Midway or, or the Illusions that you know there's a lot of space around them, it, it would have worked. But uh, especially down in the South Pacific, it, it gets kind of tight. And so I was looking at, oh, can I, can I uh, kind of have a distorted view and blow up that part of the, of the map and make the spaces a little bit bigger so I can fit some information around there? Uh, and kind of the same thing for the, for the ships. Um, if, if, say, each task force is its own little icon, then you start to run out of space and things get a little crowded, although you do get that sense. Um, I think Bruce described it in one of his emails as betting his stack of, of, of chips um, you know, grabbing this big stack and moving them. Um, but, you know, really it came down to trying to to keep things from getting too cluttered, uh, especially around the South Pacific areas where Rabal and Guadalcanal aren't that far apart. Um, and I think uh, uh, one of the things Bruce mentioned about, you know, cost of, uh, of the graphics, it, it's, it is more expensive to iterate the graphics than, than really anything else, um, for me anyway. I don't, I don't have a, a dedicated in-house artist. I work with a couple of um, a couple of local art studios, um, but, uh, you know, kind of churning things lots and lots is, is a little bit out of, uh, out of what I can afford right now. I actually, uh, uh, this is Tom Chick here, John. I just want to say I, I'm really happy with that you haven't done any zoom-ins, that there aren't that many sort of icons on the map. And I'd be curious what you would think of this observation, if you would agree or disagree. Uh, it seems to me that Warplan Pacific is, to other war games, what I think a lot of casual games are to other video games, in that it, it's, on the surfaces, it's very simple. It's sort of easy to sort of jump in and move things around. Uh, and the gameplay mechanics are... When it comes right down to it, they're they're very straightforward uh, and almost simplistic. And I don't mean that to, to denigrate the design. Uh, I mean that in a way as, as praise in that all you're doing is scooting ships around and all the gameplay mechanics are pretty much in there in terms of which bases you're building up, which victory conditions you're grabbing. Uh, you know, there's no, like, research allocation and you're not manually... <laughs> reinforcing squadrons. Uh, well, in some ways, that's what screwed me up. I mean, I, I actually sort of... <laughs> no, I'm totally serious. I, like, I, 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 was, I opened up the game. I didn't have the manual, to be, to be fair, which is not fair, because normally if I had bought the game normally, I would have had the manual. But So I opened it up expecting some sort of tutorial. I mean, it's a war game. I expected there to be stuff about resource allocation and unit strength and you know what the rock, paper, scissors mechanics were going to be. And... And really, all you're doing is pushing your little pawns around. And it took me forever to realize that all I'm really doing is pushing my pawns around. You know, I don't have control over my resource allocations. I don't have control over what reinforcements I'm going to get where. I don't even have the you know same number of stats I'd have on a normal little cardboard chit uh, to play with. And and it, it actually, the fact that it was so straightforward and almost uh, you know very simplistic in the mechanics really got in the way of me figuring out the game. I, maybe that's just... Well, to be fair, Julian, I mean, just to be fair to the design, and John can talk to this, there, there's a very careful tutorial in the manual. Uh, the manual, which is excellent, uh, does a great job of sort of playing you through a few turns to get to get you started. So you kind of got yes, screwed. Yes, I realize that now. 
<laughs> but I would just be curious what John would think of being yeah. called a, a quote casual war game. Well, well I just want to, before John answers that question, no, yeah. before John answers the question, I just want to make the point, the very important point, that as a war game, I mean, this is how war games. I mean, this is really how board war games and war games in general sort of started. Or that's the this is a traditional war game in that it's actually trying to simulate something. In that here's the historical order of battle. You know, here's here's what the two sides got. Go play with it rather than you know researching technology and and all that. I mean, <clears throat> for most strategic war games, that was actually not. Uh, part of the design, the the idea that you got a fixed set of assets and it was a real game where you know use these assets against your opponent's corresponding assets. Um, so well, that's certainly in the in the board game world or you know in the traditional war game world. That's almost always how it is. You're playing a scenario with. I mean, I I'm much more of like a, a tactical squad based chip player. So I'm all about advanced squad leader and conflict of heroes and those kinds of board games where you're Don't always say getting... conflict of heroes and ASL in the same sentence though. Oh God, <laughs> we're gonna, you and I we're gonna we're gonna have words. I can tell we're gonna totally have words. Um, all right. Oh. All right. So John. Speak, do you want to speak to that point yeah. about, uh, I mean, I, I see what Tom's saying. I mean, this is something that I'm really interested in. That I think that the most interesting war games of the last three years have been the ones that have been simpler, clearer, ask the player to do a lot less. You look at the Ajod game, Birth of America. You look at Defending the Reich from HPS Studios and Warplan Pacific. The best war games have been the ones that have been pared down, simpler, easier to approach. Uh, was that an intentional design? Yeah, have you, absolutely. And have, um, you pl- have you played Grigsby's War in the Pacific? Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, I have a... Uh, actually, I played that. I played the Pacific War, uh, you know, the forerunner to it. Um, I have what I'd call a love-hate relationship with it. Um, I, I love the material. I love some of the aspects of the game. Um, it it is takes too long to play for me. And... and um, that was kind of one of the things I realized is not everyone has the time to invest more time than the actual war took to, to play the, the game. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it's uh, it's a phenomenal game, and it's a phenomenal system, and it has a, a ton of dedicated fans. But, um, you know, they're, they're, I, well, I look at it this way. I think that um, any hobby, when it starts to think of itself as a uh, – a niche market, and definitely war games are thinking of themselves that way. There can be kind of a, a, a death spiral to make that a self-fulfilling prophecy because everyone starts running for the uh, uh, rivet counters. And if, if any of you have done any model railroading, right, that's kind of the derogatory term for, for guys that look at a HO 187th scale steam locomotive and complain that the smoke box on the K4 Pacific doesn't have the right number of rivets. Um and when that happens, it kind of, it makes it really hard for for new guys to come into the to the game to the to the hobby. Um, and one of the other things I found in in my own gaming is I get really excited. I get a new game. Um, you know, I'd, I'd hear it was coming out. I'd order it. It'd show up. I'd install it, and I'd start to play it. And and I'd get kind of discouraged. And the next thing I knew, I was firing up Civ three to play another game of that. And and I realized it was the, the learning curve. Um, was taking up so much of my available game time that before I could become sort of proficient enough with the game to enjoy it, I kind of felt like I needed to be playing a game and 
went back to something I already knew. So I really kind of felt like um, there needed to be a game that was quick to get into. Sorry, Julian. Um, but <laughs> uh, but that you know you could keep learning and playing and, and maybe think about something besides the mechanics you know, for most of your actual learning curve, that you could actually feel sort of proficient about operating the game in a relatively quick uh, period of time so that you, you know, you got enough feedback and enjoyment to keep going. How would you feel about being called a casual war game? Um, wouldn't, wouldn't particularly bother me. I, I, my, my, uh, the two design constraints that I went into it um, with were, one, that it had to roughly be three hours or less. And I picked that number because the, the tagline I was using was uh, put the kids in bed, play a complete game, be in bed yourself by midnight. So, <laughs> kind of, you know, intentionally targeting this group of, I think the bulk of war gamers are, you know, 30, 40, 50 year old guys that um, have a lot of a lot of demands on their time. And, yeah, they've uh, got to be at work you know, in the morning. <laughs> yeah, and, and they got a family that can't have them disappear off into the, you know, into the game room for, for hours and hours at a time. Or at least if they did, they end up sleeping in the couch or something but um so so i that was that was one you know constraint it had to fit in that amount of time and and then the other was yeah i want to kind of challenge this whole idea that this is a i mean this is a casual war game i think that's that's completely uh as far as emphasis on the word game i think it's really a misnomer and it's interesting how tom is already trying to you know trying to you know bias the conversation as, as he always does um that the only thing, as far as I'm concerned, that these that the, a lot of the hardcore war games have going for them in terms of hardcoreness is time, because time involvement. And that's it. I mean, that's really it. These you know things that have these 400 turn uh, you know East Front battles where you have you know a thousand units. I defy you to find anybody who's doing all the calculations for every attack and figuring out you know, how far units can go and, you know, really spending a lot of time actually thinking about how they're going to use the game mechanics to play the game. I, I, it makes, that, that, Bruce, sounds like you You have just now, the thousands of people playing Hearts of Iron, uh, you, you've just now completely invalidated their time. There are people who like that. There are people who no, play no, that. No, no, I'm talking about Hearts of Iron. I'm sorry, that's a, different, that's a different game. I'm talking about things like, you know, the, the HPS games. The HPS, the, the their Panzer Command campaign series, which is just madness. Right, okay. and, and and so I, no, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to invalidate people's time. I'm trying to talk about how, in order to play that game, in order to play the you know the the HPS games and all these things that have you know counters and a lot of you know a lot of game quote game mechanics end quote, um, you can't take those into account with every battle or with every move. Because there's just too much going on. So what people end up doing is playing the game by feel. Let me finish. And so what you're doing is you're sort of you're sort of you know touchy feely um, you know playing the game. Whereas with a game like uh, War Plan Pacific, you actually have to think about the consequences of everything you do because one or two misplaced units can cost you the game. So I would argue that aside from the time. You know, if you were playing War Plan Pacific against another player, it would be probably it would it would demand as much you know thought per unit time as any of those other games, probably more. 
my my counter was just going to be that in the more complex games, it's not that you're going to be taking advantage of every level of complexity for every move, but it allows the player to get in there and do that when they want to or when they feel that there's a strategic advantage. I think the best games are the ones that let you do both. I mean, the, the example that I've been playing most recently, which isn't a clear example, um, is something like Sins of a Solar Empire, where you can play at a very macro level, or you can get in there and you can make every single ship move exactly where you want to and do sort of micromanagement of engagement ranges. Very few people do that, I agree. Uh, and, and really, most people end up playing those games at a much more macro level. And it is refreshing that there is that sort of designed at the macro level feel to where Plan Pacific, but I miss the fact that I don't know a lot of what's going on underneath it. I mean, there are things that I just, I mean, there are examples in the manual, which I did finally read, of things like, uh, you know, your, your, your force de, uh, diminishes based on how far you're projected from how big a base, right? So if you're, if you're taking a carrier group and you're going all the way across the map, you know, w without passing any major ports, you are somehow less effective than if you were moving from, you know, Brisbane or something like that. Um, but so, there's no details there. I, I don't actually know exactly. I don't know that this size carrier, once he makes three hops past a base that can support him, is 50% as powerful. I know I have no I have no knobs I can control or even stat lines I can look at, and I do miss that. The the that, so that's the combat efficiency mechanic, and that's one of the. Uh, one of the things in the design that I, I was kind of disappointed in, in how it's playing out because it doesn't seem that to be uh, an important element in the way people are playing, and, and it really was meant to be. So that's that's a, a miss. Uh, although uh, Julian, if you look at the lower right-hand corner when you're when you're assigning a mission, you'll see a, a little pop-up that'll tell you what the combat efficiency is for for that force when you go there. So it's there, but it's it's clearly from your experience and from uh, and from what I've seen from you know the the um, forums and whatnot, it, it's not getting the prominence that I really wanted it to have. I don't think the penalty is high enough. When I, I'm, I'm, I think that that's the issue. The penalty is not high enough for, for for distance. That's why it's not being taken into account. You always need to wherever your your ships are going, that's where they need to be. And it's you the penalty. I don't think is high enough to ever make you not want to send them across the map. That's just my guess. Yeah, and I think also it's 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 sort of a long term penalty too because you're uh, uh, you know if you're constantly fighting at fifty percent efficiency, in the end you're going to have fewer ships left at the crucial you know battle two years from now. But like you said, right now you need them in in Borneo, so that's where they're going. Did you ever experiment, John, in the design with having more tactical input during the battles? Or was it always supposed to be a sort of a hands-off, it's running the calculations kind of under the hood and presenting the results to the player? So there were... Uh, uh, the airstrike scre uh, screen, there was a kind of a target uh, selection initially uh -huh. mm -hmm. where you could say, well, I want to I bomb these ships, I want to you know, focus on these guys. And I ended up cutting it because uh, I didn't want the game to boil down to a um, gang up on one ship um, at a time kind of thing um, where you could sort of ahistorically um, mass fire on one target, sink it, and then mass on the next one and move along. Um, and and also it, it added time. Um, 
and it was already kind of pushing up against the, the limit of what uh, what I wanted the game to take. Mm-hmm. So I ended up cutting that and saying, well, it's 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 randomized. The pilots will go for the kinds of ships that historically they would go for. They won't always hit the ones you want. Um, you know, historically, pilots missed ships. Uh, they were hidden in rain squalls, or they mistook an oiler for a carrier and all kinds of other things like that. That, you know, how these guys, geez, you know, you think they were trained. How could they, with everyone shooting <laughs> at them, misidentify a ship? I don't know. Uh, but... So I, 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 you know, took that out, and then also in the surface action, there was originally a, a more complex um, tactical battle where you had uh, boxes where you could put ships you wanted to send on uh, torpedo runs to try and launch torpedoes, and then you had ships you could try to screen your battle line from the torpedoes, and uh, that kind of went away when destroyers got cut because there weren't destroyers were really the ships that did that, um, and cruiser light cruisers kind of screened against the destroyers and once destroyers weren't an actual unit in the game and considering the inability of the allies most of the war to actually employ uh, service torpedo attacks competently um, what I ended up with saying well you know what that's a Japanese tactic and I'll just build it into the to the resolution of the game save time um, but it, it did take away you know one of the actions that the player could could do mm-hmm. so that was a you know conscious decision I knew that um, I knew that there were going to be things that people would say, gee, I wish I had a little bit more control over this. I wish I could uh, send my planes certain places, or I wish that there was some land-based units um, or more control over, say, the, the invasions, the amphibious units, and things like that. But, you know, every one of those, I knew that there would be somebody that would like it, but adding it would add just that little level of complexity and then one more little level, and, and each of that would take a little bit of time and a little bit of time, and pretty soon I'd have... Um, you know, War in the Pacific Light, uh, which wasn't the game I was trying to make, right? That, that game exists. I don't need to make that. I can play it. Uh, one abstraction that I'm curious, that's, that's, I mean, the one that sort of popped up for me, and I don't, I don't know if it would even, if there would even be a way to fit that in there, but uh, th- there's no uh, submarine warfare presented in there. It's entirely abstract under the hood. Uh, did yeah. you ever play with that? Uh Submarines, I, I cut those really early in the design, and in retrospect, I probably cut them before I really explored them as much as I should have. Um, I, I've got some ideas about how to how to put them in, you know, back in now. But um, that was it was just cut really early, and and I was focusing on other things and never really brought them back into the to the design. That's a good question. One of the things that immediately occurred to me as I was playing it, as the Japanese were increasing their oil supply, was I could really use a submarine here to cut off their oil. There's a way to right. spend ship points or uh, spend them, instead of marines that be coming in two turns, I could uh, cut back their oil supply one way or another. Are there, are there a lot of complaints that the, that the marines are just boiled down to, here are some amphibious boats landing in Iwo Jima, that you have a lot of players who miss uh, the struggles for Okinawa? Um, it, it, I, no, not really. I mean, I'm sure that there's people that would like to, to see that, but um, for the most part, I think people are taking it, you know, face value and saying, well, you know, that's not what the game's, what the game's modeling. The important thing is to get the troops there. I mean, there really weren't very many examples of invasions that failed if the, if the uh, um, invaders were able to control the, the sea area. I mean, right. Wake Island, they got beat off the first time, but they came back and took it the second time. And um, Guadalcanal was a struggle to see who could control the, um, 
the sea long enough to reinforce their their troops and um other than that they're you know really pretty much if you got your troops to shore they took the took the objective so why did you choose those victory conditions so my favorite parts of the game and i mentioned it in my review was how clear the victory conditions are laid out both in the manual and even in game um what needs to be done how you can get there and the actions you need to take to get those victory conditions into play. Um, and I've always been curious as to how war game designers and board game designers choose their victory conditions. I, I wanted to go with the things that were reflective of the real world um, strategic objectives. I didn't want to go with a point-based system. Um, I, I don't, in general, I don't like point-based systems in war games. They, they feel a little artificial. Um, you know, especially in naval warfare, you're not, the goal isn't to just go fight a battle with the other guy. The goal is to support some kind of operation, usually on land. So I looked at what were the real strategic objectives in the war, and, you know, Japan needed oil. That was the, the reason the war started. So the, securing the oil bases became uh, uh, an obvious initial objective. And then the way the war ended, the U.S. strategic bombing, um, which had been, you know, longstanding U.S. Uh, um, strategic doctrine for a war with Japan was to isolate it and, and bomb it into submission. Um, so that became the second one. And then looking at, uh, I was looking at Guadalcanal, this huge battle that consumed basically everything that either side could throw into the war for six months. And, and why did that, why was that fought? There's no oil there and, and certainly out of bomber range, but it was all about preserving the, the um, sea lanes to Australia. Um, bombers there would, would be able to, cut the approaches and Australia was just a really important forward base and it was it was critical to a lot of the it wasn't just critical to the allied objectives in the Pacific there was this whole broader scope to it um, where you know Australia was a Commonwealth country and it kind of was expecting the Royal Navy to help defend it but the Royal Navy was a little busy fighting fighting Hitler um, so the US kind of as a part of the whole rainbow um, uh, strategic planning for the entire war, accepted the burden, really, of, of um, defending Australia the way that, that Great Britain would have, so that Australia's best troops could stay engaged in the Mideast and, and, and still helping the European theater. So the consequences of, of letting, you know, Japan uh, interfere with, with shipments to Australia would have been more severe than just setting back, uh, you know, the operations in the Pacific. I think it would have had consequences in, in Europe too. So that became okay. That I had to work that in somehow, and and so those there came to be this kind of nice symmetry of uh, um, each side had a, a fast victory condition and then a slow victory condition. So if you're the Allies and you want to try to to keep Japan from securing enough oil and and you know raid their bases there and maybe keep them from capturing enough of them early in the game, you, you can try for that, you know, for the short victory. If Japan, you can try to cut the sea lanes for the short victory, but if neither of those work out, then you're kind of in for the long grind of trying to last long enough, because that was really Japan's only, that was their strategy, was to last long enough for the U.S. to say, uh, the American public to say, we don't really want any more of this, let's just let them keep China, which is what they wanted. So here's a little marketing tip for uh, for selling copies of the game, John. Uh, yeah. When Buzz Lerman's Australia comes out on DVD, you should piggyback on, onto that there. 
That's a terrible idea. No, come on, because it's about Australia and World War II. I think it's a great idea. Well, you should tell that to the guys at Shrapnel, John. And, and, and Tom, Tom Hanks and, uh, and Spielberg have a um, Pacific uh, version of Panda Brothers basically come out. Ah, too. there you go. That might be more appropriate than my idea. So, actually, yeah, that's probably a better one. <laughs> it will almost certainly be a better movie. <laughs> it won't have uh, Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman, though, so... There's a little celebrity cachet you could piggyback. Right. If right. Hugh Jackman isn't, isn't the Wolverine or singing, then I have no interest. <laughs> uh, so another uh, thing that I'm curious about, if you ever experimented with, because uh, I know Julian, this struck him, and it struck me as well. Uh, did you ever experiment with giving players more control over stuff like uh, resource and production and when certain ships come out? Because all that, very hands-off, and I feel that right. to the game's credit. Uh, but did well, Bruce has already you ever me I'm an idiot for even thinking about that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, I mean, I really kind of like Bruce was saying. I wanted this to be a traditional uh, war game. This is what these are the forces that Nimitz had. These are the forces that Yamamoto had. What can you do with them? Um, and you know, I didn't want to get too much into the uh, gee. Well, maybe I can research. Uh, um, you know, F six is F six F faster and get those out there earlier or something like that. Um, there's already enough kind of hindsight goes into any sort of game like this. I think adding the the resource control, although it it's interesting and you know is is good game in, in its own right to have that. Uh, it's also you know more subject to the to the warping history based on your how you knowing how it turned out. I do love how you get that one little convoy thing. It's like, okay, what are you going to do with your convoy? You know, where are you going to send yeah. that? Right. Uh, that that's just a great. As far as resource uh, management in a war game, that's all I need. You know what? Just make me so, make so, one broad decision. Yeah. So for the people who are listening, that, that's how you build up your bases. You get maybe one convoy every few turns, and the supply of your base determines how many ships you can put there. So, so that's a re- makes it a really tough decision. And that actually, so we should thank Bruce for that because he 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 was the inspiration for that. He wanted more sense of of his of you know building up his his empire. And before that, you built bases up, but it was it was a little bit more you know spread out like people. So I kind of got this idea that well, why don't I let the player pick a place to focus? And you still build up everywhere a little bit, but you can you can try to really build one place a lot faster. Yeah, that that no, I thing. Can't Bruce can't be. Yeah, that's kind of shocking, huh? No, I, I well, think that that's a great. I came up with the idea. He was just the inspiration. We got we got to make sure we get that right. He was your muse, you're saying? <laughs> I, I yes, think that that's it. That's, but he wasn't. He wasn't wearing a toga or anything. <laughs> you don't want to see Bruce in a toga. <laughs> anyway, so we're moving right along from that. Um, I, I think that's. Uh, I think that's a. That's a really. Once again, I mean, yeah, obviously, uh, John came up with the game mechanic. I was just, I think it was early, early in the in the beta when I was kind of making those points about the bases. Um, I, I really like the way the game plays in that you make these, um, you make a limited number of decisions and sort of have to live with them, and that mechanic fight into that. Uh, um, and I really like the thing that I I sort of was was really pushing for at the at the. Um, Beginning of the beta was that the, the for for really um, getting a robust multiplayer because this is the kind of game I think there's so many war games that are designed for um, for people to sort of down and, and, and toy with them um, 
you know, like like John said, you know, in the evening for three hours, and I think it's a it's a great goal. But there really aren't any that I can think of that I would be able to sort of um, challenge somebody like Tom. Say, okay, you know, let's play Warplant Pacific uh, on uh, you know Sunday or something like that, and be able to sit down and actually play through the game. Um, I mean, there are plenty of plenty of those those long, uh, you know, quote hardcore, end quote, war games that uh, you can play by email, but um, there's really nothing to nothing to fill that spot if I want to play a game against somebody online and uh, have it be, you know, historically, uh, historically themed or even, in this case, like sort of a historical simulation. Well, certainly so, not at the, at the larger strategic level. I think that's the beauty of it. I mean, you and I could right. sit down and do a battle in Total War or something, but what John has that's managed to capture so well... Uh, but it's about war. It's a war game. Call of Duty. Just war Call of Duty. Oh, you, you, you did it before I said it. <laughs> I totally went there. Uh, uh, but I, I just love the fact that John did that at the scale that he did that. Because, uh, you know, I, I miss those kind of games. And, and not being that much of a war gamer anymore, there aren't many that I can play without that huge investment uh, in terms of getting over the learning curve. So I love that John this strategic level gameplay sort of squeezed it down into board game mechanics and just made it so accessible with fewer, broader, more important decisions to make. Conflict of Heroes I hear is good, by the way. Uh, you might want to try playing that. Too. <laughs> oh. I, know, I know what you did. Don't think that I don't know what that is, because I do. Good work. Um, so... It, is I I haven't actually been able to um, find anybody to play the multiplayer against. If if um, if uh, Tom were uh, Tom and I were still playing Tom versus Bruce, this would absolutely be a Tom versus Bruce. Yes, um, yes, one hundred percent for sure. Um, you can really pretty much bank that one. But um, how, how how important? I'm curious as to how important that that multiplayer aspect was. That yeah, was it sort of just that you wanted to design the game, John, as um, in the way you wanted to design it, and just hap- that ended up happening to fit very well with multiplayer. Or were you ever really thinking about any multiplayer in the first place? Because I'm sure it's a tiny fraction, tiny tiny fraction of the audience of the game. Um, it, it was. It just happened to fit in um, that. You know, I kind of knew that if the game played fast enough, then it would be a candidate for for online play. But you know, I was working on the mechanics of you know how how's the game going to play out. But um, on the other hand, the, the whole idea of people getting together and, and playing a game against each other uh, that was kind of you know I, I'm glad that it worked out because I think that's an important sort of way to give it legs. Um, you know, once you get done beating up the AI and know what it's going to do, then you can try someone else and, and, you know, get a different challenge. Do you have any idea from the Shrapnel forums how popular multiplayer is? Um, I can't really, I, I can't really make a good extrapolation of that. Um, so, no. <laughs> I mean, the... Just I, no, I can use more no words way. to say it, but yeah. <laughs> uh, what are you, uh, and this might be premature to ask, John, but what, what are you working on now? Do you have something else yeah. in, the, in the wings? So, uh, yeah, two uh, things going on. So, one, someone mentioned play by email. I, I am working on a patch for Warplan Pacific to allow PBEM play. Um, oh, so that would ask. be awesome. Yes, get, as a matter of fact, you know, you I, get, totally do that, yes. I'd initially cut it because I was thinking, well, you don't need to. 
But then I realized, actually, it's probably a perfect PPEM game because it doesn't take you that long to get, you know, get back to where you were, you know, your last last turn, right? You can pretty now actually. So it, I'm one of the things that I don't you can't you during a battle choose the option to withdraw. Is that a problem? In the, so that's have... part of what. Yeah, I have to rework things a little bit so that you have to uh, uh, before you end your turn and send it off. You have to. Uh, give each of your of your objectives a uh, sort of an aggressiveness rating. You know how aggressive do you want your ships to be there? Because the computer is now going to make that decision for you. Okay. So you get to say, you know, normal, you know, just engage forces if you think you can win, or or you know, at all costs, don't ever retreat from this, or or flee anything you see bigger than a light cruiser. You know, so um, that's one of the big changes. That's why it's taking a little bit of time because I have to get that right. Um, the other thing I'm working on is a space uh, tactical with a little bit of strategic overlay uh, space combat game called Stellar Squadrons. I'm so glad I, to hear that, by the way, just because while I'm playing, and this is just an example of how I'm so far removed from the wargaming roots I once had, but while I'm playing Warplan Pacific, I find myself thinking, man, it would be cool if these were like spaceships. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's just sad. No, no, no that's not sad at all. That's very sad. So I'm glad to hear, John, you... John apparently has the same uh, sort of built-in predilection (laughs) to Flights of Fancy, so I'm glad to hear you're doing that, John. Like all men of class. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I cut you off. Of a certain class, anyway. Space game, I'd love to hear more about this. Uh, Okay, yeah, so... So the idea is it's about maybe 150 years in the future or so, and there's some human colonies scattered around. Um, There's still factious nations on Earth, right? So there's still people fighting each other, but the kind of sentiment of most of the world's population is, you guys have an entire universe to fight in, don't fight in the solar system. So, um, some battle cluster colonies several light years away that different um, different nations on Earth are kind of competing for, and uh, so you're in charge of a squadron of ships sent out from whatever nation you want to play to go control your, your um your nation's interest there. And I'm trying to make it, I'm starting with a, a hard sci-fi uh, game and then and then adding just a little bit of cinematics where I need to to make it fun because the hard sci-fi is probably not all that much fun. I kind of, the, the image I keep having, I don't know if any of you have ever read a book called The Making of Star Trek, but you remember the original Star Trek uh, in the opening credits, the, the Enterprise flies by and you hear this swoosh and some people think, there's no sound in space. Uh, don't these guys know anything? Well, I remember reading this book, the first time they, they ran those credits, they didn't have any sound because there's no sound in space. And everyone sat around looking at it and thinking, mm, something's missing. And so then somebody ran and edited it and added a little swoosh as the as the ship flies by. And, and okay, yeah, that's what we needed. Um, so it, kind of that, right? Hard sci-fi, but, but tweak it a little bit when I need to. Um, to kind of add some fun in. So, but the ships are going to be a small number, a relatively small number. You maybe have a dozen, 15 ships in your squadron, and you're going to have to make decisions about where to send them. Um, you'll get to build your squadron on Earth. Uh, kind of, I'm going to steal a little bit of an idea from Tim Brooks at Shrapnel with uh, going back to 101st Airborne, if you you ever how you put your, your platoon together at the start of that. 
it'll be kind of like that. You'll you'll get to pick your ships. Do you want the USS Lexington? Do you want the uh, you know USS uh, Saratoga? Which ships do you want? At kind of like a point cost. So you can have a lot of battle cruisers and a handful of frigates or lots of frigates. And then you're out, you know, fighting whoever the other faction is, or maybe there's going to be two other factions um, in this in this sector. And there's no there's no radio, faster than light radio, so everything messages are as fast as the fastest ship. So it's kinda like in a certain way, it's gonna be like a Royal Navy uh the commander of the Royal Navy West Indies Squadron in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, you're, you're a long way from home, kind of on your own, and you got all these isolated colonies uh, and and ships that you know are kind of slow compared to the distances. But you're gonna you're gonna have to fight an enemy who can move around quite a bit. So a lot of it will be kind of searching, trying to trying to um, kind of force the other guy into a corner or, or not let him force you into a corner with, with where your ships can go, and you'll have to worry about things like, you know, how, how much range can my ship go, like, before I run out of food I'm not familiar with the Star Trek thing you were talking about, but um, are you, you going to be able to, like, level up your ships and stuff? Because I don't think Tom's going to play if you know, can't have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this is, this is an interesting uh, decision I'm trying to work with is, the initial design, um, and this is kind of one of those those hard sci-fi, and maybe I'll bend it a little bit. It's not so much you're trying to level up as you're trying to avoid leveling down, because you're way away from <laughs> any of your shipyards, and your ships are start falling apart as you know as they jump from system to system and get into scrapes and and you know take damage. Uh, but I'm kind of thinking back to some of the um, there was a design note, and I think it was Civilization Three where they introduced um, golden ages for, for civilizations and like their initial their initial take was actually not that your civilization went into a golden age but that it went into kind of a funk and and yeah. and then they said oh you know what that's not very fun people don't like that so they turned it around and said well okay we'll use the same idea but we'll make it a a, a, a reward instead of a penalty so I'm kind of worried about that a little bit that if it really is this matter of trying to you know just keep your ships kind of held together with baleen wire and bubble gum long enough to finish your mission um, and avoid leveling down, that that might not be fun. So I may have to add some some level-up possibilities in there. Um, but oh, don't sell just, out. It sounds like a great <laughs> idea. Don't sell well, out. That's what I want to say, too. I want to say don't sell out, sell out as well. I mean, that's that's a huge part of you know, game design is, is resource allocation. When you're playing a, a, a challenging game, you know, what? how do I use what little I've got? Uh, and I think that's an awesome idea. As your ships start to fall apart, there's no nearby maintenance. Absolutely don't. To, I don't if, you, if, if Star Trek Voyager has taught us anything, is that you You cannot argue with the premise. Star Trek Voyager was the whole idea was we're stranded way out in the middle of nowhere. They got along just fine. So. <laughs> there you go. Well, Why does so, even have so, to have a war? Couldn't couldn't you just agree to just like you know be friends? Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll, that'll actually be the first thing. The first turn, you decide: Do you want to be friends or do you want to fight? <laughs> and if you want to be friends, then the game is over. You've won the first. Yeah, turn. exactly. Everybody <laughs> wins. Everyone wins, right? So, there. regardless of what happens with the leveling up or leveling down, though, the, the game is going to really focus on the ships. They're going to they're going to have names. They're going to you know uh, develop personalities as time goes by, and, and I. Um, It'll be. I think I want to capture a little bit of like the old XCOM 
deal where you've got your squad that you put together and you send out and you kind of care that that things develop. I mean, your ships, your crews will get more experience, your commanders will will get more experienced or die, and and then you got to replace them with somebody else. So, you know, I kind of want to have that that sense of carrying uh, a, a group through. Um, but instead of soldiers, you're you're dealing with ships. But and tell us again the name of the, your working title that you're working under here. Stellar Squadrons. Okay. So, John, you're not remaking War at Sea then? Well, uh, so not immediately, um, but you know, drawing board, uh, I, I do have some ideas for a sequel to War Plan Pacific that um, adds, you know, more theaters and maybe more time. Um, one of the ideas really is to take something that goes cover the age of the dreadnought and into the age of, of you know initial carriers um, and give people choices of where they want to um, when and where they want to fight. So, you know, if you want to refight World War One or if you want to refight um, the Atlantic. Now, the, there's some serious challenges. I have to add some stuff um, to make War Plan Pacific, you know, work for that. The, the surface action has to be beefed up and submarine warfare has to be taken into account and all the things that, that matter when carriers aren't around to, to blow the other guy out of the water before anything else can happen. So there definitely challenges involved, but I've got, I've got some ideas about that. Yeah, it would be hard uh, to uh, it would be hard to just port War Plan Pacific over right. the, uh, to the Absolutely. Atlantic. Oh, I was wondering, could you tell us at all, I don't know if this is a uh, coach to talk about or not, how well War Plan Pacific is selling? Well, um, you know, so we're only getting the initial numbers in, and um, uh, the economy's definitely, you know, hurting things a little bit. But um, it's selling enough that, that I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Good, good. The, the, the critical response has been quite strong. Um, Jim Zabak gave it a rave review over at Wargamer, and IGN even gave it a positive review. So, And they hate everything. <laughs> I, I noticed that one. <laughs> All right, that, 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 that's a bit of a lie. But. <laughs> I did notice that when the review first came out. Like, 74, oh, oh, they hated it. And then I looked like, wow, that's like the 12th highest one they've had so far this year. Okay, it's not, not so bad. <laughs> Actually, actually, so IGN's reviewing a lot more war games now, so the fact that it got reviewed at all is a quite a, on a major site like that's quite an accomplishment, I would think. Uh, One thing I, I was really, asking. you know, say I'm, I'm hoping that Metacritic picks up a couple more, so you know it actually gets a rating there. <laughs> uh, One thing I was hoping you could do for us, John, uh, and this <laughs> this is a little silly. Bruce is probably going to laugh at this. Uh, would you read Probably? us your epilogue from the manual? Yes. The epilogue from the manual. The All very right, last so, page is very short, yep. uh, but I just love what you did, and I would love to have you the people listening to the podcast. All right. So, epilogue. Many decades after the end of the war, a man sat down with his family for Thanksgiving dinner. The man had once been a dashing young airman in the U.S. Navy, flight engineer on a PBM Martin Mariner flying boat. In the days immediately after the war, he was stationed for a time in occupied Japan, before being discharged and returned home to marry his high school sweetheart, raise a family, and dedicate himself to education, salmon fishing, and golf, usually in that order. His daughter-in-law knew about his time in the Navy, and at this particular Thanksgiving dinner, asked the former airman if, while in occupied Japan, he ever gone out to eat at Japanese restaurants. Restaurants, he asked, shaking his head. No, they didn't have restaurants. Those people didn't have anything. They lived in rubble. 
Japan had suffered mightily for her ambitions. Her navy, once one of the most powerful on the planet, lay scattered across the floor of the Pacific. Her cities were shattered, burnt, and obliterated. Her people did indeed live in rubble. But her erstwhile victims and eventual victors had suffered as well. Tens of thousands of Allied soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines had died on the beaches, in the air, and on the sea. Tens of thousands more suffered horrible wounds. Millions of Chinese died in the occupation of Manchuria, and the Filipinos suffered in equal measure, if not equal numbers, during their own ordeal under imperial rule. The atrocities of Nanking and Bataan added brutality to the incarnate. The horrors were at an end, though. Peace and freedom bought at a dear price by the courage of so many brave souls. We owe them today our world as imperfect as we may sometimes think it. Thanks, Dad. I know you preferred barbecued salmon to sushi anyway. That was my dad, um, and that was my wife who asked him that question. And I, uh, I really, I thought about that when I was, you know, putting the manual together. And it, it, uh, I thought, you know, I, I, this is a game about something that cost a lot of people their lives and a lot of other people a lot of horrible injuries. So I, I kind of wanted to end with uh, um, letting people know or reminding people that it's not all fun and games. There's serious stuff involved here and that we should remember what you know all these folks went through. When you were a kid, did your dad talk about the war much? I mean, is he partly responsible for making this a subject of interest for you, or did you... Uh... I came to that mostly uh, on my own. I mean, he uh, he didn't really talk a lot about what he'd done, and, and you know, he he was really young uh, anyway. He was, uh, I think he was 15. Um, Pearl Harbor was a couple weeks before his 15th birthday. It was actually on my mom's 13th birthday. It was a, a hell of a party the Japanese threw for her. But, <laughs> and, 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 and it's great because, you know, I wake up in the morning and I see a, a picture of the Arizona Memorial on TV. I know, I better call mom and wish her happy birthday. <laughs> But he was pretty young when the war broke out, and he uh, he really wanted to be a Navy uh, fighter pilot, and he needed a high school diploma to get into to flight training. So he uh, um, he worked real hard and got together with his teachers and graduated high school about six months early so he could join the Navy, and he got into flight school and, and all the rest. But it was, uh, I think it was like 1943, and by that time the Navy had uh, had too many pilots already, so they one day the base commander came in and said, sorry, Navy's got too many pilots, you're all washed out, you can go do something else. And so he became an air crewman. And by the time he got into the war, there really wasn't anything much left to shoot at. Um, <laughs> he was, a, you know, they were a, a patrol boat, so they were mostly looking for submarines. And he said they dropped some depth charges once and probably was a whale, but um, that was, you know, <laughs> his real, his real uh, uh, war stories were, were getting into fights with the Marines in the Shanghai bars after the war. That was... <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us, John. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, uh, being on the show. Uh, thanks uh, for the opportunity. I loved it. Hope Rock Plan Pacific is a great success, and when Stellar Squadrons comes out, we'll have to have you on again. You bet. Bye, everybody, and we'll see you here again next week. Say bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Goodbye, all. <laughs>